This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. <clears throat> My name is Brian Schottlander. I'm the university librarian here at UC San Diego, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all to what is now our 12th annual Dinner in the Library. It's a great pleasure to have each of you with us tonight, and while dining in these hallowed halls of the Geisel Library is always a special thing, I think tonight's event may even be more special than it usually is, for reasons that you will understand shortly. Um, This year, we have wonderful tools of technology to assist us with some of tonight's presentation. Uh, You'll be seeing another segment later in the evening from a video that we've developed recently for our new donor wall, um, which is located just above us on the main floor, and I hope that some of you have had the opportunity to see it on your way into the reception tonight. Um, Before I say too much more about this evening's program, I'd like first to introduce UC San Diego's Chancellor, Dr. Pradeep Khosla. Chancellor Kosla, many of you will remember, had been on campus scarcely a month when he joined us for dinner in the library 2012. And I will never forget his genuine excitement to be dining in the library. (laughs) In the ensuing three years, he has truly gone where no UC San Diego chancellor has gone before. By leading the the campus in developing the university's first ever strategic plan, a plan that codifies our mission to be a student-centered, research-focused, service-oriented, public university. Please join me in welcoming Chancellor Pradeep Khosla. Thank you, Brian, and welcome, everybody. So I was walking up here, I was trying to figure out how do I start, and I literally was thinking about three years ago when I got up here, and I said, you know, people would ask me when I got here, like, what do you like about UC San Diego? You know, it's a new job, so people want to know why is it such an exciting place. And the easiest way to explain what I liked about UC San Diego then, I said, you know, it's the library. (laughs) No, seriously, I said, you look at it, and you see the future. You look at it, and even 50 years later, after it's been built, it looks like this spaceship, ready to take off, ready to take us into a different world. And that's what the library is all about. But I would say that only because I knew the library from the outside. I had never walked inside. And then a month later, they told me I could eat dinner in the library. And I said, oh, this is great. No, I'm not, seriously. So that was amazing, right? And since then, I've been coming to every dinner in the library. And I have to tell you, this library is equally good and equally great on the inside. It is one of the largest collections in the UC system. Not the largest, but up there. But we have more than 2 million visitors, both electronically and physically, that look at our collections out here. And the person who's taken charge of these collections, who's created an excellent vision for this library, who's trying to build us and position us for the future, Brian Schottlander. Please give him a big hand. So the theme this evening is uh, building the future or looking to the future. And I think that's what this library is all about. And this was three years ago. And the more I think about this library, the more I think about the generosity of you all, not only taking your time, but your resources and investing in us. I really want to thank you for everything you do, because without your resources, we would not be where we are right now. And don't look at this empty space. When you're gone, the books are going to come back here. Okay, so we don't have space. We need new space. So what are we doing with the library? Uh, Brian talked about the the strategic plan. One of the things that came out was defining ourselves to be a student-centered campus, to be a student-centered university. And one of the most important things, the most important experience for a student is the teaching and the learning experience. And Brian, again, thanks to him, we had this great vision. Actually, Barbara, sorry, where's Barbara? Well, there she is, okay. She's a dean of students, and she had this great vision of uh, building a teaching and learning commons. And I thought I would build a new building for the teaching and learning commons. Brian said, no, they don't need a new building. They should be in the library. So he offered to give four floors. (laughs) And I said, Brian, I don't need that many floors. So 
I don't want to take your space away. So Brian gave up like 15,000 square feet. And I think there could not be a better, more perfect location to put our teaching and learning commas that's going to define the future of how we teach and how we learn, that's going to define the future of uh, digital education, MOOCs, online education. It's going to be located right here where our students come, not only to study, to collaborate, and to have a little bit of a quiet time, but they would be here with our leading instructors in that area. So Barbara's going to be leading this. Gabriella Wienhausen, she's not here today. She's going to be leading this. And Jeffrey Alman, our Dean of Social Sciences, is going to be leading our online strategy. Okay, so when we had this great vision, this great plan, uh, Brian took, uh, had the opportunity to present it to Audrey Geisel. And she, without saying much, immediately offered to give us $3 million to get this going. So Audrey, I know you're not here. But I know you're listening, and Alex is going to tell you, uh, thank you very much for your generosity, for your commitment. And she's also hosting this dinner tonight, uh, 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 doing this dinner tonight. So thank you. Alex, you will take this to her, right? Okay. So that is how good, how great our library is. Now let me say a little bit about how great our dean of libraries, our librarian, actually it's not, the, the our leader of our libraries is. So Brian... So our library just recently was ranked as the top 25 academic research libraries in the nation. And the website, Uniplace, listed the Geisel Library as number five on its list of 25 best university libraries in the world, not just in the U.S. So thank you, Brian, for your leadership. This is amazing. And why did they do that? Because they recognized that we are noted for our Seuss collection. And believe it or not, the Seuss collection led to this new book, What Pet Should I Get?, just very recently. And I'm told that when we got 100 copies initially, and I wanted one, I never got any. <laughs> they were sold like within, what, five minutes, right? And I was hoping you'd get, keep one for me. But anyway, I'll remember that. Uh, okay. With that said, Brian this year was also recognized as uh, the 2015 winner of the Hugh C. Atkinson Memorial Award for significant contributions in the area of library management and improvement. So thank you, Brian, one more time. And, and as I was reminding him how great an award this is, he says, you know what, Pradeep? A better award was when I got the Dis Distinguished Alumnus Award from Indiana U just this year again. So I tell you, that is a much bigger award for your alma mater to recognize you. But you being the librarian, Brian, this is your alma mater too. So uh, congratulations again, and thank you everybody for being here. So. See why it's great to work here. Um, as Chancellor Kosla noted, our event theme this evening is Building for the Future, and so it won't surprise you that throughout the night's program you're going to hear many instances of how the UC San Diego is, uh, Library is both evolving and excelling um, in meeting what are rapidly changing needs of our users and trying to do so at a level that's commensurate with the institution's world-class reputation. Uh, we're very fortunate to have some special friends and supporters with us tonight whom I'd like to recognize. Uh, we're very honored to have with us Dick Atkinson, the President Emeritus of the University and former Chancellor of UC San Diego. We have with us this evening two other Emeritus Presidents as well. Allison Gildred with her husband George and Bob Witte, both past presidents of our former friends group. And also joining us tonight are the chair of my university librarian's advisory board, Karen Dow, along with board members, Dr. Joel Dimsdale, Stanley Fair, Sabrina Johnson, and Julie Larson. In addition to the Chancellor, several members of the campus leadership are with us tonight as well, including our Executive Vice Chancellor and my boss, Suresh Subramani, with his wife, Feroza Ardashir, 
And also with us tonight from Academic Affairs, as um, Pradeep indicated, is our good friend, Associate Vice Chancellor Barbara Sari, and one of my newest colleagues on campus, Christina Della Coletta, who joined us a year ago from the University of Virginia as our new Dean for the Arts and Humanities. So thank you all for your support, and we truly appreciate your being with us. We also have a very special student with us tonight, not Dong Do. Do, who just recently graduated with a bachelor's degree in political science and history, won first prize in our 2015 undergraduate library research competition. Congratulations, Do, and thank you for being with us tonight. Um, we're very grateful for the generous support of our lead sponsor, Audrey Geisel and the Dr. Seuss Fund at the UC San Diego Foundation, as the Chancellor indicated, and for that of our platinum sponsors, Don and Marianne Lyle. I hope that you've noted the names of the other sponsors of tonight's events, which have been scrolling on the monitors on either side of the stage. We very much appreciate everyone's support in making this evening happen. Although Audrey Geisel, our devoted and cherished benefactor, is not able to be with us tonight, we're very pleased that Alex Butterfield, longtime friend of Audrey's, is here with us on her behalf. And I'll be saying more about Audrey's friendship and support and the Geisel Library Revitalization Initiative mentioned by the Chancellor later in the evening. I don't know how many of you know, but two years ago, we uh, signed a deal with the University of California Television, or UCTV, to create something called the Library Channel. Um, and they're filming tonight, and they film a number of our events and programs. So the reach that we're able to achieve as a consequence of this relationship is really staggering. We have some very interesting events scheduled for the fall that I'd like to mention briefly. We've just announced this week that the library has acquired the papers of the award-winning independent filmmaker Paul Espinosa, who has won eight Emmy Awards for his documentary and dramatic films on Hispanic American life and border immigration and cross-cultural issues. To celebrate this acquisition, we've launched a film series for the fall, starting with a reception in Paul's honor on October the 10th here in Geisel Library. And two weeks later, on the 30th, we're sponsoring an evening of culture, celebration, and conversation with Peter and Jonathan Salk, Mary Walshock, and Gary Robbins of the San Diego Union Tribune in honor of the closing of this Jonas Salk centenary and Dr. Salk's many contributions to the San Diego community. We will also have an exhibit in Geisel Library of selected materials from Jonas Salk's papers. As many of you know, the library is the official repository for the papers of Jonas Salk, which were donated to our Mandeville Special Collections by Salk's three sons, Peter, Daryl, and Jonathan. Um, you'll find some promotional materials about all of these events, along with the events planned um, by the Holocaust Living History Workshop for the coming year in a keepsake bag, which we will have for you on your way out. And I look forward to many of you joining us for at least some of these. I hope you had a chance during tonight's reception, and I did see a number of you um, clustered around them, to see some of our special collections materials, both physical items in exhibit cases and digital versions of them on a display screen, which was described to me as the world's largest iPad. Um, I want to thank Roger Smith, uh, the director of our Digital Library Development Program, uh, Linda Clausen, the director of our Special Collections and Archives Program, who's with us here tonight, and Tim Marconi, the operations manager in the library's Information Technology Services Program, for their help in making that presentation possible. The library's Digital Collections website now features almost 300,000 digital objects, including photographs, documents, audio, video, and research data sets, which we maintain for the community for teaching, research, and learning purposes. We've digitized some of our most interesting collections so that scholars, students, and members of the public can access them from anywhere at any time. And 
We will continue to do that so that we can share our riches with other people and other institutions. As you saw during the reception, our collections range from the very old, rare print material to very cutting-edge digital material. Our library has worked hard to build broad and distinctive collections that meet the diverse needs of our campus community. And we've done so as aggressively as possible on both ends of the spectrum. Private support, your support, is critical to our success and greatly appreciated. It's for that reason that I don't want the evening to pass without mentioning some of our recent collection endowments, as these endowments are essential to preserving and building the library's collections, both print and digital. Over the years, the library has established more than 50 such endowments in support of a wide range of academic disciplines and intellectual interests. I'm delighted that significant gifts have been made recently by the Robert and Frederica Driver family in support of the humanities, by Emeritus Professor Paul Friedman and his wife Claire, who are with us tonight, in support of the general research collections, by alumna Pamela Newcomb in support of the humanities, and by my advisory board member Dr. Stephen Stahl in support of the biological sciences. Now, while I'm on the subject of gifts, let me say that we had what I would have to characterize as a spectacularly Seussian year in more ways than one. In fact, you could call 2015 a Seussian trifecta of sorts. This spring, when we celebrated Dr. Seuss's birthday, we not only distributed thousands of birthday cupcakes in front of Geisel Library, as we do every year, but we also held an exhibit in the library's Mandeville Special Collections of Dr. Seuss's hat closet, a selection of wild and wacky hats that belonged to Theodore Seuss Geisel, and that, in fact, inspired him in his work. Then, just a few months ago, as Pradeep indicated earlier, we celebrated the release of the new Dr. Seuss book, What Pet Should I Get?, which attracted hundreds of kids, many of whom were adults, <clears throat> to a book release party here in Geisel Library. What Pet Should I Get?, the first new Dr. Seuss title to be released in the last 20 years, is based on materials that were donated in 2003 by Audrey Geisel to Mandeville Special Collections, the primary repository for our Dr. Seuss collection, which extends now to more than 15,000 items, including original drawings, sketches, manuscript drafts, books, notebooks, photographs, and memorabilia. And I've saved the best for last. The third success of our Seussian trifecta was truly a tremendous one, a generous $3 million gift from Audrey Geisel to us in July to kick off the Geisel Library Revitalization Initiative. We're thrilled to have received this gift, which will have a transformative effect not only on the Geisel Library, but on the campus as well, by enabling us to begin the needed renovation of the building's most heavily used interior spaces in order to better meet the educational and technology needs of today's students and tomorrow's. The work, will lead to this, the work that will lead to this transformation will begin on the main floor, which is the floor above us, our most active learning space, and will include a reconfigured lobby entrance, a new research commons, an upgraded learning commons, and near and dear to the hearts of students, a new cafe and lounge. While Audrey's gift has enabled us to launch this much-needed revitalization, it's Audrey's hope and my plan that this initial investment will help us to raise additional funds to upgrade other public spaces in the building as well. I hope that some of you will consider getting involved in what will be a significant effort so that we can make this iconic building as the Chancellor indicated earlier, as inspiring on the inside as it is bold on the outside. Um, the keepsake bag that you'll receive on your way out has additional information about this initiative and giving cards, uh, and we welcome gifts now or in the future. And my Director of Development, Julie Sully, 
uh, who many of you have had the opportunity to meet tonight, will be happy to talk with any of you who are interested in helping us in this initiative. So on that note, here is one last video clip that I'd like to share with you about the importance of support from friends like yourselves. Our library is one of the top libraries in the state and in the country. Now, libraries are the repository of information that has been discovered and created in the past. And as we try to discover more knowledge and create more technology and more creative pieces of art and literature, it's important to go back in history and see what other people have done and to build on that. And that's why it plays a very significant role in the life of a great research institution. The library provides the opportunities for students to be able to have access to materials that are not available elsewhere. I believe libraries are the great equalizer when it comes to education. The UC San Diego Library is ranked amongst the top 25 public research libraries in the country. Private support is more essential to the library today than ever in the past. It's really important to be a donor to the library because the library doesn't have an alumni section. It doesn't have a built-in donor group. So we that are involved with the library really would like people to focus on how it adds to whether it's their child's life as a potential or existing student, or how it might impact the community. I chose to endow a collection because I wanted to make sure that the library had uh, adequate material in an area that was of interest to me. I know that students are able to come to the library and find enough information on the management of software development projects because I endowed such a collection. I think there's a perception that any of the schools that are part of the UC system they get access to state funding, they get access to government funding, they don't need our private support. That could not be farther from the truth. It's incumbent upon those of us in the community to continue to contribute both in time and in dollars to make sure we keep that blood flowing within the heart. Please join us in sustaining these valuable resources that drive learning, innovation, and progress. Qualities that are a tradition here at UC San Diego. That is a perfect segue for me to turn now to this year's Geisel Citation for Library Philanthropy, which recognizes those who have provided exceptional support to the library. It is my great pleasure to award this year's citation posthumously to Kenneth and Dorothy Hill, who were frequent and generous donors to the university and the library. Ken, who died in 2001, was a respected book collector, financier, and conservationist who served several terms on our Friends of the Library's board, both as president and as a representative of its acquisitions committee. He also served on the UC San Diego Foundation's board of directors and was recognized for his contributions to the university in 1986 when he was presented with the campus's Ravel Medal. And Dorothy, always Ken's patient and understanding helpmate, helped build a sense of community for the libraries with her own active involvement in our friends group. As a book collector, the first collection Ken assembled became one of the world's most eminent. The Hill Collection of Pacific Voyages, which was featured this evening in the, in the reception, is recognized as the premier collection of books about early voyages of exploration and discovery in and to the Pacific. This stellar collection was donated by Ken and Dorothy to the university in 1974 and is housed in the library's Mandeville Special Collections. The Hill's generosity did not stop there, however. In 1993, as the library approached the acquisition of its two millionth volume, Ken and Dorothy presented the library with a magnificent copy of the Nuremberg Chronicle, published in 1493, the first great illustrated history of the world. 
And a decade later, in 2004, Dorothy made a special gift to mark the library's acquisition of its four millionth volume, The Shepherd of Banbury's Rules to Judge the Changes of the Weather, published in 1744. The Hill Collection of Pacific Voyages has grown to include now more than 1,500 titles, thanks to the Hill's foresight and generosity in establishing an endowment to support the continued expansion of the initial 500-volume collection. Subsequently, they donated a second important rare book collection, the Kenneth and Dorothy Hill Collection of Early Meteorology, and they also went on to establish a fellowship that supports scholars in their special collections-related research. Linda Claussen, my friend and director of special collections and archives, who, who has worked and knew the Hills, both senior and junior, for many, many years, um, describes Ken as follows, and I quote, Ken was one of those great book collectors whose personal interests and affinity for reading fueled his passion to collect. He had tremendous intellectual curiosity, and he actually read his books. Unquote. To receive the Geisel Citation for Library Philanthropy on behalf of his parents, we are joined tonight by their son, noted bookseller Jonathan Hill. Jonathan, if you'll join me. Jonathan, it is my very great pleasure to present this to you on behalf of your parents with much love and appreciation for all they've done for the library. Well, thank you, thank you. so much. It was a great thank honor. You. Thank you. I will hold it for you. Well, very briefly, my parents would be thrilled, but what would really thrill them even more if they were still alive is how the university and the library have just gotten greater and greater. It's one of the great universities of the world, and who would have thought that in 1970 that it became this wonderful place? So thanks a lot. It's really nice. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Jonathan. Now, Jonathan, I'm going to let you hand that off, because before you disappear, um, I would like to present you uh, with a small token, yes, there's more. Okay. A small token of our appreciation, and I have to say how genuinely happy I am to have met Megumi after all these years. I really appreciate you're both making the long trip across the country. Um, I have gotten in the habit over the last several years of um, donating a book to the library um, in honor of uh, a visiting dignitary. And uh, so to that end, um, I'm very happy to donate to the book um, in your honor, uh, Matthew Battle's latest book. Oh, that's a good book. Yeah. Okay. Very good. <laughs> uh, for, for the benefit of the rest of you, the book is titled Palimpsest, A History of the Written Word, just published by Yale University Press. So with my compliments. Sir. This, oh, thank you. I, this is not a check and payment that, for no. an invoice. No, okay. no, 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 no. <laughs> It's okay, it's painful. <laughs> okay, good. <laughs> thank you very much. Oh, thank you. Okay. Appreciate it. Um, we also produced, just for this occasion, um, a set of cards, a copy of which I have right here, um, featuring images from one of the many lovely books in the Hill Collection. Uh, this particular volume has incredible illustrations of birds. Um, and so we have a set for all of you um, that you will receive um, on your way out tonight. And Jonathan, again, I want to thank you so very much. And now at last, it is my pleasure to introduce our esteemed speaker, Dr. Sarah Thomas, the university librarian and vice president for the Harvard Library. In the library world, Sarah Thomas needs no introduction. I'm sure you all know about Harvard and Oxford, the world-renowned historic universities that Sarah has been and continues to be affiliated with. So I will say no more about them and dwell instead somewhat longer on my longtime colleague and dear friend.
Harvard's former university librarian, historian Robert Darnton, made a marvelous comment about Sarah when her new appointment at Harvard was announced a couple of years ago. A comment that not only captures my own sentiments about Sarah, but that says a lot about her own insight and talent. Bob said, if we conducted a search throughout this world and far off into the galaxy where alien librarians may be charting new paths through cyberspace, Sarah Thomas would be at the top of the list. <laughs> Having established a reputation as a superb university librarian at Cornell, she did wonders at Oxford, whose library system is both fabulously rich and bewilderingly baroque. She will be even more wonderful at Harvard. And indeed, she has been. Not content to rest on her laurels as the first woman, the first non-British citizen to have held the venerated Bodley's librarian position in Oxford's more than 400-year history, Sarah has taken Harvard by storm, challenging them to build on their storied reputation and show 21st century leadership. She has done so, moreover, with grace, charm, and wit, all of which were already on abundant display in the chronicle of her experiences as, a lead, as the leader of the Bod Squad in the book Transforming the Bodleian, published in 2012. Tonight, Sarah will talk to us about how the brave new library of today must look to both the past and the future in meeting the diverse needs of today's library users, research, teaching, and learning needs, as well as technological, social, and cultural needs. And I'm hoping that perhaps during the Q&A following her talk, she might also share an interesting and entertaining tidbit or two about the Bod Squad and the bewilderingly Baroque world in the stacks at Harvard. Please join me in welcoming Sarah Thomas. Well, hello. I'm Sarah Thomas, space alien. <laughs> It's, it's uh, wonderful to be here tonight. As I've said to many people already, um, it's a great privilege to be here. Brian is someone who means a great deal to me. I worked with Brian many years ago. Uh, he served on a committee when I was at the Library of Congress uh, to uh, unite cataloging across the United States, and Brian was in charge of a group whose motto was, more better, faster, cheaper. And he was so cool, and he, he continues to be that way, and I would do anything Brian ever asked me to do, so he's, he's wonderful. So um, there is a subversive act that is altering the way Harvard students will view libraries. About a year ago, in October, I got an email from the lead professor of Harvard's most popular course, CS50, Introductory Computer Science. They teach almost 850 students in a semester in this course. And Professor David Mallon was looking for a generous space in which to hold CS50 office hours, in which the students gather in the evening with their tutors to go over problem sets. And he wrote to me, he thought that the Widener Libraries, I don't know if you've ever seen Widener Library, but 12 giant columns, steps going up, very awe-inspiring. He thought that the Bozar reading room in the library might be just the spot, very inspiring and capacious. I thought... I might be lynched. <laughs> Widener has been sacred space for humanities scholars and students. Among undergraduates, it's what separates the sheep from the goats, road scholars from partiers. Um, I tried to distract David. I had him come over. I tried to distract him. I showed him some other very nice rooms. But he's pretty skilled as a negotiator. He said, well, Sarah, when does Widener close? I said, well, 10 o'clock at night. He said, oh, my students are just getting started then. And so we're now open uh, in the semester 
uh, we have four, the students come in at 9 and we close at 12. We had 100 students on Tuesday. We expect the number to rise up to 250 um, by, the, by Thanksgiving when CS50 is ending its tutorials. And I figure that at the end of the semester, I will have introduced another 850 students to the glories of Widener Library. They had never come into such a space, which can be with its a marble lobby, and it's, uh, it's a very austere building. It can be rather intimidating. So we've used this as an opportunity to do a few things. One, we've developed um, a relationship with the School of Engineering and Applied Sciences, uh, where, honestly, the faculty there and the students think libraries don't exist. They use everything online, and uh, it, we're, we're totally irrelevant for them. Uh, we've sent a message out to a large part of Harvard students' bodies that we are open and welcoming. We're improving services for the whole community by extending hours. Uh, our, we have other libraries that are open later hours, but this is the main um, humanities and social science library that closed at 10. Our grad students really wanted it to be open later, and so it's been the tipping point. And then we're able to expose people to something that is um, not familiar to them. These 19-year-olds, these 18-year-olds coming in. As you go up the steps to the reading room, on the mezzanine level, there is a Gutenberg Bible. And I hope to have my curators lie in wait for them and, and get them to find out what a, what a really important book is. And actually, the idea has proven contagious. I was speaking at the Mellon Foundation. The head of the Mellon Foundation board is a head of the Center for Ethics at Harvard. And uh, suddenly she said to me, oh, I'd like to do that. I'd like to have my office hours in Widener, too, in the main reading room. And I said, uh, late at night, right? Because <laughs> we don't want to have it uh, competing with anything else. But, you know, I can see that there's a change in the, in the library, and we're really transforming. There's a kind of buzz about them that belies the headlines. You know, we all see these headlines, the deserted library. Um, I was looking at one the other day, and it said, you know, our library's the dinosaurs of the digital age. And um, in The Guardian, you can see headlines that say, uh, why don't we just close all the libraries and give everyone a Kindle? Um, so I think we, we, need, we really need to uh, express the value of libraries. So it is true that people love the ease and convenience of the digital, and we see a tremendous surge in the use of online resources. And with the shift to electronic, there's a reconfiguration of the spaces and the services in libraries. More and more libraries are transferring materials off-site uh, if they have a digital twin. So you can use the digital to access something. If you really need the, the print, it can be delivered to you. That frees up this kind of wonderful space in the heart of campus for engagement with people. Now let me tell you another story about how libraries are, are changing. In the 800th year of the foundation of the uh, rule of law, when King George, okay, King George, King John first issued Magna Carta in 1215, I want to take you back eight years to 2007 when Ross Perot was selling his engrossment, the only U.S. pre-statute that's uh, um, pre-1300 engrossment of Magna Carta. I got a call from Sotheby's vice chairman, David Redden. Uh, Sotheby's was selling this, auctioning this, and they wanted to photograph the Bodleian's Magna Carta. And I said, well, yes, David, we have two. You know, I'd only been there a couple of months. I was very excited. And he said, no, David. David said, no, Sarah, you have four. You have four. 
and his researcher had had all four of them out on a reading in a reading room table, the value estimated at $75 million. And uh, when I asked my curator about the discrepancy in the numbers, he said, in a kind of deprecating way, oh, we have a lot of medieval charters. And, uh, and I think uh, that's one of the differences between the UK and the US, right? <laughs> Definitely. Uh, so the Bodleian put all four of them on display uh, in December of 2007, riding on the coattails of Sotheby's publicity. And uh, w the Guardian headline for that was, Crowds Queue to Look at Grubby Magna Carta. <laughs> A thousand people came on a single day. We, we had very little notice. A thousand people came. And I remember this old man coming with two walking sticks. And he was very determined. He wasn't going to miss this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, Ross Perot's copy sold for $20 million to David Rubenstein, who left it in the National Archives where it had been. So emboldened by success, we contrived to bring Magna Carta to an Oxford event in New York City with a boarding pass for Ms. Carta, uh, who flew virgin upper class in her own seat, belted in in a little suitcase. Uh, she arrived in New York. She had multiple adventures and then was marooned by the eruption of a volcano in Iceland. And my colleague, Richard Ovenden, the keeper of special collections, said, well, Sarah, I understand we can still get planes to Madrid, and then we'll go overland to France, and then we'll take the ferry over to Dover, and then we can take the train back to Oxford. I said, Richard, it's the Magna Carta. You know, think again. And so he came up with an idea to have it go to the Morgan Library. They cleared the Morgan Library uh, to exhibit Magna Carta. It had a full-page coverage in the uh, Saturday New York Times weekend arts section. And um, we, were, we were really on a roll, basically, uh, having this experience of exposing our materials to a hungry public. So next, Erwin Jacobs and Qualcomm sponsored a West Coast tour. I thought it was a little bit like Pearl Jam, and I had T-shirts made up. Um, one Sunday, I found myself at the Salk Institute, where we had extra sessions laid on for staff who wanted to see it. People brought their babies. People brought their grandmothers. And... I got kind of bored, actually, with these, you know, small groups of people. I was saying the same thing over and over again with my curators. So I started asking them, what does Magna Carta mean to you? And one of the most humbling and moving experiences of my life was to have a parking lot attendant give an eloquent and really emotional speech about the meaning of democracy and law. It gave purpose and meaning to being a librarian. We are preservers of the written record of our civilization. We have a mission to make knowledge accessible to society, to advance creation of new knowledge, and to secure the foundation for an enlightened world. So these experiences translated into an expanded mission for the library. At the Bodleian, we had a 1930s building designed with a very utilitarian purpose, holding the Bob's book collections and special collections. For those of you who know, it's the, the so-called New Bodleian Library I'm talking about. But the stacks, where we had some of our rare collections, had sewage pipes going through them. And they were constructed in that sort of way where there's ventilation up through the floors. So if you had a fire, hundreds of years of collecting would be incinerated in, in minutes. So 
we needed to move the collections out of there. There was a very brilliant architect who took this building. He very discreetly called it a shy building. Really, it was um, it was quite closed. Uh, and we moved the the books either to a repository outside of Oxford or actually into OpenStax. And we transformed this library into a civic and cultural space for the public and into a paradise for scholars. They had, the scholars had reading rooms and seminars where you could teach using special collections and digital media studios. And at the ground level, um, we had uh, the windows along Broad Street, which always had their blinds pulled in the most maddening way, were recast as portals to a hall that then occupied the space where the, the book stacks had been removed. And it's a, an immense gathering space with a cafe, with two exhibition galleries, a printing press, an auditorium for readings and other cultural events. And uh, I was able to go to the opening at the end of March this year. Since that time, uh, until now, 350,000 people have come to visit. And uh, the Hamelin Treasury exhibits one of the four Magna Cartas on a rolling basis. And in eight years, then, more people have seen and have learned about Magna Carta than in the previous eight centuries. It's really a remarkable experience. So, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, one of the most uh, common misconceptions, though, about libraries is that everything is digitized. So I've just been talking about things that aren't digitized, but really often when I'm out in the world and I meet people, they ask me what percentage of your library is digitized, and I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say that it's, a, it's, a, it's in a single digit uh, number. And, and there are estimated still 100 million volumes in the world awaiting digitization, um, possibly as part of the Google Book Project, and there are millions of handwritten letters, field notes, from scientific explorations, lab reports from Nobel scientists, um, onion skin and carbon copies from business uh, history, maps detailing the positions of uh, soldiers in World War I. All of these things are hidden collections that are prime candidates for digitization. But the scale of what needs to be done is absolutely staggering. Uh, for example, the Northeast Documentation uh, Conservation Center uh, near us in Massachusetts has been working on a way to digitally remaster analog recordings, and it estimates that it can save an endangered recording for about $120. Actually, I mean, that's quite affordable. That's within reach for people. Uh, Harvard's poetry collection has um, original and unique Recordings of some of the greatest poets in uh, in the world, and so we have Robert Frost or T. S. Eliot or Marianne Moore. Uh, these these uh, voices haven't been heard for decades because the disc, the recording, is delaminating, and now they've developed this procedure to be able to read this and and hear it uh, after all this time, but. I mean, so to do our poetry collection might be 100,000, but the estimate is that for all the recordings across the United States of spoken word and other types of recordings like that would be $9 billion. So you can see that it isn't going to be any time soon that everything is going to be digitized. Um, well, part of the future of libraries, then, is to raise awareness and resources to preserve these fragile remnants of history and culture, and for us to collaborate with others, including museums and archives, to make the master record of humanity available for discovery and exploration. The contribution to the public good through digitization is occurring at an accelerating pace. And with new technology enabling faster and cheaper conversion and new methods of scholarship illuminating our understanding, we can expect this to be a much larger part of the library's future. 
But again, you know, first everybody asks me if everything is digitized, and the next appalling question that I often get asked is, do you toss things out once you've digitized them? Oh yes, you know, Emily Dickinson's poem. Yeah, we don't need that. Um, um, and so, uh, you know, you think about the power of the artifact, whether it's Anne Frank's diary or um, we had at the Bodleian Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. You know, she wrote it as a teenager during another volcanic eruption when Europe was dark and they were off in Switzerland. And it has the crossouts of Percy Shelley. And I mean, how you couldn't miss something like that. Uh, you really need to be able to see that in its in its original form. But uh, so even in the digital age, attraction of, of the authentic seems to be very potent, as we've seen from the Magna Carta example. And there's a boom in teaching uh, with original documents. Our students are becoming, our students all over, are becoming more distant from handwritten letters. Uh, I did hear that the paper industry is starting a multi-million dollar campaign to encourage people to write handwritten letters to uh, soldiers overseas or to their parents. But our students, when was the last time they even wrote a little three-line thank you letter to uh, someone who gave them a gift? No. And they don't know about printed newspapers. They don't read, they read online. And uh, paper maps, you know, everyone uses Google Maps or some other substitute. So the Harvard historian and, and uh, New Yorker author Jill Lepore is uh, teaching students in her freshman seminar, uh, which is on the election of 1800. And they use newspapers, pamphlets, and correspondence from 1799 to 1800 to explore regional differences and attitudes towards the candidates who were Thomas Jefferson, who was the vice president, and John Adams, uh, who was the president. Uh, and you all know who won, right? And uh, she juxtaposes this his historic election against the current political scene. So she takes students to museums, she takes them to archives, she takes them to cemeteries, and creates that hands-on experience of discovery and connecting learning to life. They see an 18th century printing press in action. They use quill pens and write on parchment by candlelight. And she team teaches, so she has an interplay with another expert and can learn from them. And she's engaged in interdisciplinary work. And she describes her work as argument through evidence. As I was thinking about this, I was thinking this is really a lot of what we're doing in libraries now. We are working um, in partnership with faculty in partnership with students. Um, when we talk about active learning centers and um, maker spaces, it's that experience that people have by learning, by doing, and really understanding, getting us away from just the two-dimensionality sometimes that occurs when we're reading uh, online. Uh, one of the fastest uh, growth, growing activities in libraries is teaching classes inside of, of libraries. Uh, there might be sessions in which a student has a medieval manuscript at his or her place, and a special camera allows you to zoom in uh, to allow people to see certain features. Or it might be a class on a database or some other aspect of information literacy. And I think students are more likely to be, they're involved in uh, multimedia projects and they're often group works. Uh, several years ago, I had the opportunity to meet uh, Toni Morrison, and she was talking about the ambition of her generation to write the great American novel. And somewhat mournfully, she said, it was about 15 years ago, students today, they want to make the great American film. But I think students today want to develop the killer app. They want to be like Mark Zuckerberg. And uh, so, you know, we, we have to think about how that, how that works for students. I hope that those students who want to develop the killer app will be those CS students up in my reading room and that they'll have a hackathon about how to improve services 
in the library. So that, you know, it, it's, all is not lost. So when I was in college, using a typewriter was a very big technological advance. Um, today, people are very proficient in producing YouTube videos. There's a digital media studio, courtesy of philanthropists uh, Gus and Rita Hauser, on the ground level of Widener Library, which produces high-end contributions for MOOCs. And we're keen to construct one-button studios, which are the easy version for the novice or low-budget producer. You just stick a flash drive in, push the button, and record. And more and more libraries are developing spaces after you've produced your uh, report or your presentation. They have a practice room where you can practice delivering it, and they have presentation rooms where you can actually give this to uh, your peers and be critiqued. Uh, librarians are also involved in the production of scholarships, serving as publishers and disseminators of knowledge, using the democratic um, power of the web to promote the intellectual contributions of researchers. We operate online uh, institutional repositories, which are really fantastic for reaching the intellectually curious around the world. Uh, and we are accelerating through making our faculty scholarship available, their research available. We're accelerating the creation of new knowledge. Uh, another focus in the libraries, another new focus, is research data management. Uh, more data than ever is being produced. Um, you may have uh, read a couple of years ago that Forbes article, which was, um, is data the new oil? Uh, of course, that was back when oil was $100 a barrel. Uh, but at any rate, it's, uh, data is definitely something that people are, are paying a lot of attention to. And funding agencies are mandating that people who receive funding from them uh, place their data in a repository where it can be made available both to reproduce their studies so that you can really test the efficacy of their, of their work, or for others to be able to use that data without having to spend the money to, uh, to recreate it. Enter the librarian. Uh, who has a better reputation for keeping artifacts for generations? Who might one trust to maintain the integrity and the authenticity of data? And who has a culture of openness and accessibility. Data is increasing in importance as a product in its own right, and we can expect academic credit to be given uh, just for the production of data or for the software that's used to manipulate it. So when researchers are applying for grants, uh, they have to prepare these data management plans. It isn't quite as bad as doing your taxes, but we know that our researchers uh, just want to do research. They don't want to be doing that kind of paperwork. So enter the librarian. But it's not just that we're the handmaidens of the researchers, but it's actually a covert action to gain advanced knowledge of data that's going to be created. And we can insert ourselves helpfully into the process, meaning that we can actually contribute to the attributes of the data that will make it retrievable and ensure that it's going to be stored efficiently and securely. And along the way, we're building relationships with people who have begun to think we were irrelevant because we were invisible to them. So the ability to archive the world's knowledge is one of the most important and enduring characteristics of libraries. Only today, it's accomplished in a networked fashion rather uh, than in an archipelago of um, isolated institutions. Partnerships with libraries and museums and archives and on a local, regional, national, and international level are building um, seamless networks of expertise and experience. So wh what is it we think about the future of libraries? So we're, we're transforming from storehouses of books to centers of active learning. We have an increasingly important role as intellectual and social and community hubs in campuses and in communities. 
And libraries will be developing virtual and physical spaces to connect readers with information. Today, it's about connections, not just about collections. And we know that we want our libraries to be welcoming and open and friendly to people. We want uh, our, to expand our audience to the broader community and share information on a global scale through a multitude of partners. And libraries, like the Gazelle Library, are developing a local presence as a leader in fostering creativity and sparking the imagination. So when I was a kid, we were having these very powerful images of westward expansion. There were cowboys and Indians and space exploration. That was my, my childhood. And I had this moment where I was feeling sort of um, sad that everything had been discovered, you know. And, and then I realized that I was living in possibly the most exciting time, which is this information age, and that the library is at the very heart of it. The possibilities for reimagining libraries are really endless. They're, they're very exciting times, and I know that just because you are here tonight that you really care about libraries and you want to be part of this transformation too. On behalf of, it, well, in this transformation, I do want to say this because it blends the best of the past with the promise of the future. And on behalf of all librarians, I want to thank you for your benevolence. You provide the zip and the pizzazz and the ability to innovate, preserve, and share. You change the world for students, for faculty, and for the public good. In our world, you friends of the library, you're our heroes. Thank you very much. I can see a gentleman over here. Last time I was in Cambridge, mm -hmm. I could not get inside of the Widener Library. Mm. To go. That was before we were open and welcoming, right? Well, it sounds as though there has been a real revolution, and that would be wonderful not to be able to see the Widener treasures is tragic. Thank you. Thank you. I agree wholeheartedly. And although I do have to confess I still see visitors come up the steps, press their nose against the glass, some of them penetrate through the inner doors of the vestibule, and then they're turned away by our doorkeepers, as you probably were. Um, but more and more we are opening the library to to visitors. I did, this is the hundredth year of Widener being built. It, it was opened in, in um, 1915, and I had a birthday party to which 1,500 people streamed in. We had a jazz band, and I, and I don't sing, Jonathan, I led them in singing happy birthday. So next time you come, Dr. Carson, we'll make sure the doors will be open for you. <laughs> The Houghton always did a nice job of letting you in. Yes, the Houghton is a, it, I mean, we have an embarrassment of riches at Harvard, and the Houghton Library is the, uh, a, a rare books library next to Widener. And I see these visitors being turned away from coming into Widener, and I know actually Houghton is open but they keep it as a little secret because they don't want to be overwhelmed. And you, so you, that goes back to this Magna Carta story because I'm obsessed with how is it that I can change this closed and restricting environment into one that's going to share this great wealth of, of knowledge, these fabulous collections with others. Because isn't it a shame to have them locked up there and only enjoyed by a very few people? So there has to be some way to break through in our environments to 
allow people to come in and at the same time to provide the protection that you need. And that's the balance I'm trying to achieve. Yeah. If anyone else is raising your hand, I can't see. So I think <laughs> I might have to say thank you very much. And uh, um, it's a pleasure to have been here. Thank you. Thank you, Sarah. Um, we're so glad that you were able to join us tonight. And thank you, Dr. Carson, for the um, annual first question. Much appreciated. Um, as a token of our appreciation to you, Sarah, we, I also have um, acquired a volume that I'm going to donate to the library in your honor. I've selected um, Alberto Mangel's Curiosity, which is an exploration through the eyes of various thinkers and writers of one very deceptively simple question, and that question is, why? Curiosity is Mangel's follow-up to his book, The Library at Night, um, which is a, a wonderful book about his creating a library in his own home, a book that um, many of us are familiar with, and I suspect, like me, you admire. So um, with, with thanks. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. And now is the time when I acknowledge the hard work and the high energy of the dedicated staff who made tonight's event possible. And these include Taylor Hagland and Julie Sully, along with their student assistant, Gabby Parker, uh, Nikki Colupelo and Dolores Davies, Barbara Brink, Christina Continelli, Michelle Corcoran. I'd also like to thank my advisory board for helping with auction items, sponsorships, and getting the word out about tonight's event. And finally, I want to express my gratitude to the many student and staff volunteers who are so critical to the success of this event. Please join me in thanking them all with a round of applause. That concludes our program, ladies and gentlemen, and I hope you've all enjoyed yourselves as much as I have this evening. As you depart, um, we will have keepsake bags for you to take home with you, including that promised selection of new printed cards from the Hill Collection. Um, these will be given to you at the doors on your way out, and if you've won an auction item, your name will appear on the whiteboard in the auction area, and staff will be there to assist you in claiming your prize. So let me bid you all good night and good travels. Thank you for your friendship and support, and I look forward to your joining us next year on Friday, September the 16th. Have a good evening. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.